0: This is Mel Weinstein, host of the Food Labels Revealed podcast. Welcome to the fourth episode. Okay, everyone, how important is food in your life? As a daily requirement to keep you functioning, its importance better be pretty high. It's the source of our energy, the building blocks of our body, and essential nutrients to keep us healthy. Given the importance of food, Shouldn't we all be concerned about what we are putting in our bodies on a daily basis? It's only common sense that the higher the quality of the food we eat, the more healthy we will be, the more energy we will have, and the greater resistance we will have to getting sick. To maximize the quality of the food we eat, we must know what's in the food. If we don't know what's in the food, how are we ever going to make smart choices about what to eat? So knowing what's in our food is all about becoming familiar with the ingredients and additives in the foods we eat. Now, if you cook from scratch and buy all the ingredients from the produce section of the supermarket, or from farmers markets, or directly from a farmers, uh, from, a, from a farm, or grow your own, you will have considerable knowledge about what's in your food. But, if that was true for most people, There'd be no need for this podcast. The sad truth is that most Americans have hardly a clue about what's in their food since they buy and consume processed foods and don't bother to read food labels. Or even worse, they may frequently eat out in restaurants where all food ingredients are rarely ever listed. What additives are used in restaurant food? Good luck trying to find an answer to that question. So the purpose of this podcast is to open the window on food ingredients and additives in packaged foods routinely found in the grocery store. The first step is knowledge. With knowledge, you can make some informed decisions. Now the problem with food labels is that they can be hard to decipher, given the chemical names, abbreviations, and the truly irritating generic ingredients that appear on the label. But that's where I come in. I've had an interest in food science for almost 30 years. I am retired now, but earlier in my life I worked as a chemistry educator for 10 years, then as a research analytical chemist for a multinational food ingredients company, where I learned a great deal about the additives in packaged foods and where those ingredients come from. My goal here is to share with you what I have learned in ways that I hope will be easy to follow, easy to understand, And whenever possible, as light hearted as it can be. This is a 100% guaranteed free podcast. It won't cost you a thing. I swear that I will never ask you for money. I have no sponsors or financial supporters. All the opinions expressed in the podcast are mine, and I promise that I won't promote any business, commercial product, or organization. I just wish to keep this podcast authentic. All I ask of you is to give me your time, which I know is valuable. And if you are so inclined, drop me a note with questions or comments at this email address, foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. That's all one phrase, foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. Also, if you could leave a review at the iTunes store and at my YouTube channel, uh, just search on foodlabelsrevealed, I'd greatly appreciate it. And also please subscribe to the podcast or the YouTube channel or both. I recently read a very good book about food ingredients that I want to share with you. It's called Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us by Michael Moss. If you have any curiosity about why food manufacturers create all the myriad packaged foods that you see in your supermarket, you need to read this book. If you want to find out why you have the food cravings that you do, you need to read this book. If you want to learn how food manufacturers have manipulated our taste and desire for food, you need to read this book. To whet your appetite, I'm just going to read you some excerpts from the inside cover of the book. Quote, In the spring of 1999, the heads of the world's largest processed food companies, from Coca-Cola to Nabisco, gathered at Pillsbury's headquarters in Minneapolis for a secret meeting. On the agenda, the emerging epidemic of obesity and what to do about it. Increasingly, the salt, sugar, and fat laden foods these companies produce were being linked to obesity, and a concerned Kraft executive took the stage to issue a warning. There would be a day of reckoning unless changes were made. This executive then launched into a damning PowerPoint presentation, 114 slides in all, making the case that processed food companies could not afford to sit by idle as children grew sick and class action lawyers lurked. To deny the problem, he said, is the court disaster. When he was done, the most powerful person in the room, the CEO of General Mills, stood up to speak clearly annoyed, and by the time he sat down, the meeting was over. Every year, the average American eats 33 pounds of cheese, triple what we ate in 1970, and 70 pounds of sugar, about 22 teaspoons per day. We ingest 8,500 milligrams of salt a day, double the recommended amount, and almost none of that comes from the shaker on our table. It comes from processed food. It's no wonder then that one in three adults and one in five kids is clinically obese. It's no wonder that 26 million Americans have diabetes. The processed food industry in the U.S. accounts for one trillion dollars a year in sales and the total economic cost of this health crisis is approaching 300 billion dollars a year end of quote before getting to to today's investigation i would like to do a little review in the first 3 episodes i've talked about 81 ingredients i want to split those two i want to split those into two categories the first category includes those ingredients that you would actually consider to be food. In other words, those ingredients you might actually use in your kitchen to prepare a dish. The second category includes those ingredients called additives, which are not necessary to make the food, but are present to add some quality to the product, such as color, texture, preservation, enhanced taste, etc. So, of the 81 ingredients covered so far in this podcast, 46 of them, or 57%, I'm grouping under food, and the rest, 35, or 43%, I'm calling food additives. Now, here's the thing to remember. The Federal Food and Drug Administration, known as the FDA, has approved thousands and thousands of food additives. Additives. So you can see with 35, I've hardly scratched the surface at this point. Okay, on with the food investigation for today. Let's get some supper. In episode number two, for lunch, I examined the frozen banquet chicken strip meal. Fast, cheap food. Also, for many years now, Various dry package dinners have been created by food manufacturers, with the most popular one being the Betty Crocker Helper Meals, the boxes that have on the cover the Helping Hand mascot, a white four-fingered hand with a red nose and spy- smiley face and, and holding a big spoon. Those all-in-the-box dinners were introduced around 1971 and began with Hamburger Helper, but since then They've expanded to include Chicken Helper, Tuna Helper, and other varieties, representing a number of cuisines. If you're into corporate fairy tales, you'll be disappointed to learn that Betty Crocker was never a real person or even a company. She was a brand name, created for marketing purposes by the Washburn Crosby Company in 1921. They wanted an all-American lady to provide personalized responses to consumer inquiries. The name Betty was selected because it was a common and well-liked American name. Her last name Crocker derived from the company director, whose name was William Crocker. The Washburn Crosby Company eventually merged with four other companies in the early 1920s to become the General Mills Company, which today is a Fortune 500 mega food company giant i mentioned that helper meals are all in the box dinners but that's not really true the helper meal that i'll be evaluating is chicken helper sweet and sour chicken when you buy the box for about a dollar 50 according to the directions on the box you still have to get a pound of boneless chicken breasts and use 2 tablespoons of vegetable oil the stuff in the box just provides rice a seasoned coating mix for the chicken, and a sauce mix. The real cost of the six approximate one cup servings of the prepared meal is roughly $5.50, not counting the oil, and you still have to prepare the chicken, the rice, and throw everything together. So, as a time saver and convenience foods food, these helper meals just don't match up to the pre-prepared frozen meals. I guess these dinners are for people who don't want to stock vegetables like tomatoes, onions, and garlic, cornstarch, spices, or flavorings in their kitchen. Helper, Helper meals sound like a whole lot of work to me and I question why people just don't prepare their own homemade dinners and avoid all the additives that are in those packages. Alright, let's take a look at the ingredients in Chicken Helper Sweet and Sour Chicken. Here is the list. Enriched white rice, sugar, cornstarch, brown sugar, maltodext, and modified cornstarch, salt, tomato, soy sauce, partially hydrogenated soybean oil, malic acid, vinegar, spice, yeast extract, color, chicken fat, natural flavor, chicken powder, chicken broth, silicon dioxide, lactic acid, calcium lactate, citric acid, onion, and garlic. All right, so that amounts to 28 ingredients. As an interesting aside, the the helper box has these words written on it partially produced with genetic engineering. Now our federal government does not require the labeling of packaged foods that contain genetically modified organisms or GMOs, but General Mills, in this case, is voluntarily providing that information. Kudos to them. The vast majority of genetically engineered foods are made from corn and soybeans. So based on the label, the GMO sources in the ingredients list are most likely from cornstarch, modified cornstarch, and soy sauce. The sugar is also a possible GMO source. Other ingredients on the label like lactic acid and citric acid may be derived from corn-produced dextrose, but they are very unlikely to have GMO genes in them. State governments are slowly moving towards requiring the labeling of GMOs in processed foods. So General, General Mills may be anticipating the changes that are coming. So far the federal government is balking at the direct labeling of food packages that contain GMOs. Not counting vitamins and minerals, there are 28 ingredients in this product. As usual, with one exception, I'm not going to discuss the common and innocuous ones. So I'll skip such items as salt, tomato, chicken fat, chicken broth, onion, and garlic, but I will still number the ingredients as if I was talking about all of them. If, you're li- if you've listened to the first three episodes, you're bound to notice that many ingredients are repeatedly used by the packaged food industry. For items that I've already talked about in detail before, I'll refer you back to a previous episode and just touch on them lightly here. The first ingredient is rice. Nothing special here, but I want to point out that the rice in the package is white rice, the cheapest and least nutrition, r- nutritious rice available. Okay, how do, how do rice companies make white rice? Start with rice from the fields where it's taken to a mill and cleaned and the husk removed from the grain. At that stage the rice is called brown rice or unpolished rice and as a whole grain it's the most nutritious form of rice. In the mid 19th century a way was found to refine the rice by stripping the bran portion of the grain and then polishing the modified rice grains into shiny white rice. But the result of that process was to remove the bulk of vitamins and minerals in the rice and and thus reducing the nutritional value of it. Unfortunately most people like the look and taste of white rice over brown rice. Early on the wealthy people got to eat white rice while the peasants got the brown rice. As the technology improved to make white rice and the process got cheaper, even the lower classes could afford it and white rice became the favorite type of rice consumed. Unfortunately, people who eat a diet high in white rice could be candidates for the disease beriberi, which results from the deficiency of B vitamins. It's interesting to note that General Mills adds niacin, which is B3, and thiamine, which is B1, to the white rice to enrich it and to make up for what was removed at the mill. The second item is sugar. Now normally I would call that a common ingredient and not say anything more about it. But I want to pause here and go into a little bit of detail about sugar. First of all, note that sugar is the second ingredient in the package. So after white rice, there is more sugar in the helper mix than any other ingredient. Secondly, note that in the food industry there are two sources of sugar, also called sucrose. There is cane sugar and beet sugar. Most beet sugar in the United States comes from genetically modified beets. So, if you are at all concerned about consuming food ingredients derived from genetically modified plants, then beet sugar should be avoided unless it's coming from organic beets. However, General Mills does not tell you about the source of the sugar, so it's a crapshoot in this case. Most people think of sugar as a natural commodity, but in the case of cane sugar, It's really a very processed food. I'll describe the complex process briefly here. The sugar cane, which has 12 to 14 percent sucrose in it, is cut and taken to a sugar mill. The cane juice is extracted out by crushing the cane between large rollers. The sugar mixture is then clarified to remove wax, fat, and gums. Then the sugar is concentrated by boiling under vacuum to remove water until sugar crystals form. The raw sugar crystals are spun down in a centrifuge to remove the vast amount of water to give a golden raw sugar which is 96 to 98 percent sucrose. To produce the white sugar we're all familiar with, the raw sugar next goes to a refinery where a solution of it passes through a series of cleanups To remove the last traces of molasses. Then the sugar solution is passed through carbon filters, most likely bone char made from animal bones, to remove the remaining color. The resultant white syrup is vacuum concentrated and the sugar crystallized. The crystals are centrifuged to remove the last traces of water and impurities and then the crystals are dried. So that's how white sugar gets made. The third ingredient is cornstarch, another highly processed ingredient. I'll refer you to episode number one for details. The fifth ingredient is maltodextrin. Maltodextrin was talked about in some detail in episode number two. This too is a highly processed ingredient and very ubiquitous in packaged foods. It's actually a complex mixture of carbohydrates and can be made from various grains like corn, rice, and wheat. The sixth ingredient is modified cornstarch. This additive was highlighted as the ingredient of the day in episode number one. The key thing to remember about modified cornstarch is that it's a generic term representing dozens of different chemically or physically modified substances. So when it appears on a food label, you really don't know what you're eating. The ninth ingredient is soy sauce. Now, soy sauces obviously have to be made from soy, but General Mills on the label also specifies wheat as a source. So the soy sauce they use came from a combination of soy and wheat protein. Soy sauce can either be made by a fermentation process or by using a solution of hot hydrochloric acid. The cheap sources are made using acid which is most likely the case here, but General Mills doesn't provide that information. Soy sauce can also be called hydrolyzed vegetable protein in case you spot that on other labels. Since soy sauce is normally a liquid, the label indicates that the soy sauce has been dried before being added to the mix. Also, as mentioned in other episodes, Any hydrolyzed vegetable protein will produce monosodium glutamate, or MSG. So if you're sensitive to that stuff, stay clear products with soy sauce. The tenth ingredient is partially hydrogenated soybean oil. As a vegetable oil, soybean oil is very cheap stuff. On top of that, a red flag should come up whenever you see the word hydrogenated. That means trans fat will be present in the product not good for your heart. Note that the label claims zero grams of trans fat. Anytime there's less than a half a gram of trans fat per serving in a product, the FDA allows food manufacturers to report that amount as zero grams. Isn't that wonderful? They're really looking out for us. The eleventh ingredient is malic acid. It's there as an acidulant, that is, to add some acidity to the product. It was also discussed in episode number three in detail. The twelfth ingredient is vinegar, the ingredient of the day. Now this ingredient deserves some airtime. Everyone knows that vinegar is a liquid. Actually a weak solution of acetic acid in water. So how does a liquid ingredient get added into a dry mix, such as the helper product? Answer, through the magic of chemistry and food processing. Do you remember when salt and vinegar potato chips first showed up in stores? Did you ever wonder how liquid vinegar got into the chips? Well, me neither. That's why vinegar is the ingredient of the day. Here's how it's done. A thin layer Of vinegar is sprayed onto maltodextrin or a modified food starch. The porous structure of the maltodextrin or starch absorbs a large amount of vinegar. The excess vinegar is removed by drying to give a powder which can then be used in any food where a dry vinegar is needed. Cool huh? The thirteenth ingredient is spice. I've railed against this generic ingredient before. Why even bother to place it on the label if the food manufacturer isn't even going to tell us what spices are actually used, nonsensical and stupid. The fourteenth ingredient is yeast extract. This is probably the same as autolyzed yeast extract, which was described in episode number two. It's there for flavor. The fifteenth through eighteenth ingredients are coloring agents listed as caramel color, yellow lakes five and six and Red Lake 40. Isn't it interesting that four color additives are needed in this helper product to provide colors to the rice and sweet and sour chicken that the consumer will find naturally looking. If you prepare this dish in your own kitchen from scratch would you grab artificial colors off your pantry shelf? Not likely. Now the brownish caramel coloring comes from heating up sugar, and that additive was described in some detail in episode number three. The other colorings are called lakes, so that needs some explanation. A lake in chemistry terms is a pigment prepared by precipitating a soluble color, like an artificial food coloring, with a metal compound containing aluminum, calcium, strontium, etc., to give a solid coloring agent that can be used in a dry product like the chicken helper. Artificial dyes or colorings were discussed in detail in episode number one, where yellow number six, also called FDNC, yellow number six or sunset yellow, was the ingredient of the day. So here I'll just say a few words about the hazards of these artificial colors, many of which are directly or indirectly derived from coal tar. I'm drawing on information. provided by Ruth Winter in her book, A Consumer's Dictionary of Food Additives. Yellow 5, also called tartrazine, was FDA approved in 1966 with no limitation on where it could be used. Aspirin sensitive people may also be sensitive to this dye and may suffer from asthmatic symptoms. Yellow 6 was permanently listed as an FDA additive in 1986. It has been shown to cause allergic reactions in people. The British and the European Parliament were considering banning it around 2009 because of its reported effects on hyperactive behavior in young children. Uh, The last color, Red 40, also called Allura Red, was FDA approved in 1971. Also, the British and the European Parliament were considering banning it in the same year, 2009, due to its effects on young children. The 19th ingredient is my old nemesis, natural flavor, a catch-all term for some of a zillion different ingredients that General Mills uh, chose to use in its product. For additional comments on natural flavors, check out episode number one. Hey, let's take a break. It's joke time. A not-so-bright chemist was playing trivial pursuit one night. It was his turn. He rolled the dice and landed on science and nature. His question was, if you are in a vacuum and someone calls your name, can you hear it? The chemist uh, he thought for a moment and then asked, is it on or off? <laughs> the 21st ingredient is chicken powder. Here I must pause because I've never heard of chicken powder. Obviously it's probably being added as a flavoring agent, but where do you where do you think it comes from? Checking online it's tough to find a definitive description, so I'll just share some possibilities with you. Number one, chicken flavoring is made from cooking Chicken meat for a long time, then adding tons of salt and evaporating the water, leaving chicken flavored salt, and that's a form of chicken powder. Number two, the Knorr Company makes a product called chicken seasoning powder, which is made from chicken meat, fat, herbs, and spices. And three, chicken powder just comes from chicken broth that has been dehydrated, similar to a chicken flavored bouillon cube. However, notice that the 22nd ingredient is chicken broth, which begs the question, how is chicken powder different different from chicken broth? I don't have a clue. If you know the answer to that one, please message me. The 23rd ingredient is silicon dioxide. Now, this is an interesting additive. The name silicon dioxide is a chemical name. Now, why would General Mills use a chemical name here? After all, they don't list salt as sodium chloride. Here's why. The common name for silicon dioxide is, drumroll please, sand. If the few people who actually look at food ingredients on the package saw the word sand, they might get put off by it. They may think, why am I eating sand? Or why is there sand in my food? Next to silicon dioxide on the label are the words anti caking agent in parentheses, which means that the sand acts to keep all the solid materials from clumping together. They stay free-flowing. Now, being the 23rd ingredient, the sand is there in very low amounts, you know, less than the coloring agents. Still, it's interesting how food manufacturers play with ingredient names so as not to alarm their customers. The 24th ingredient is lactic acid, It was mentioned in episode number 2 and like citric acid just serves to provide some acidity to the powder mixes. The 25th ingredient is calcium lactate. It serves as a buffer in the product. A buffer controls the acidity or alkalinity of a product by maintaining a narrow range of pH. The last few ingredients are citric acid already mentioned and the food items dried onion and garlic which don't need any discussion here. Alright, so that's it for the ingredients in the chicken helper dinner. How about the nutritional aspects? Of course, it doesn't make sense to talk about the nutritional facts on the box since nobody in their right mind is going to directly consume the packets in the box. So I need to talk about the prepared dinner. The box suggests that there are six servings of one cup each. Now I don't know about you, but a cup serving sounds kinda small. I think one and a half cups is more reasonable for a meal, so I'll calculate the nutritional components based on that amount of food. Before looking at the individual food components, I want to say something about daily values. When you look at a food label, such as the one for the chicken helper product we're looking at, that we're looking at here, you'll notice next to the list of food components, a column labeled percent daily value. For example, next to total fat on the chicken helper box, the number 1% is listed. That means in each unprepared serving consumed, a person will get 1% of the daily fat recommendation. This value is usually based on a 2,000 calorie diet. The Federal Food and Drug Administration sets the recommendations for each food component. Here is how that 1% was calculated. The recommended daily total fat consumption is 65 grams. The package states that each serving provides a half a gram of total fat. So divide 0.5 by 65 and multiply by 100. The result is 0.77 percent which gives 1 percent when rounded up. Let's get back to the prepared chicken helper dinner. Starting with fat content, there are about 10.5 grams of total fat in 1.5 cups. That computes to a daily value of 16.2%. That's reasonable for a single meal. What about saturated fat? This type of fat you want to keep to a minimum since it's associated with heart disease. There are about 1.1 grams of saturated fat in one 1.5 cups. That computes to a daily value of 5.5 percent, which is pretty low. What about trans fat, which is also associated with heart disease? On the label, that is reported as zero grams, but as mentioned before, it's not really zero. We know that partially hydrogenated soybean oil is present in the product, and hydrogenated oil will always have trans fat in it. However, since the amount of trans fat per serving is less than a half a gram, the food manufacturer doesn't have to report it. What about cholesterol? High cholesterol diets are implicated in heart disease and stroke. There are 43 milligrams of cholesterol in one and a half cups. That computes to a daily value of 14 percent. But for someone who has high blood cholesterol already, the daily value is suggested to be 22 percent. These numbers are still acceptable for a single meal. What about sodium? There are 540 milligrams in one and a half cups. That computes to a daily value of 23 percent. Still acceptable, but a person should be aware of sources of salt present in other foods eaten in the meal. What about total carbs? There are 72.2 carbs in one and a half cups. That computes to a daily value of 24.1%, which is all right for a single meal. What about sugar? There are 21 grams of sugar in one and a half cups. Now, strangely, the federal government has not set a limit on sugar consumption or a daily value, even in the face of an obesity epidemic in this country. However, The FDA has proposed a daily limit of 50 grams, which might go into effect in 2018. Based on that number, the daily value computes to 42%. Wow. Now you can see why food manufacturers are not keen on the government setting limits on sugar consumption. Sugar, along with fat and salt, are overused in processed foods to attract people to buy them. Note that if you drank a 20-ounce bottle of Coca-Cola, you would exceed the FDA daily limit for sugar. What about dietary fiber? There are 0.75 grams of fiber in one and a half cups. That computes to a daily value of 3%. Of course, you want to have a significant amount of fiber in your diet to help you with digestion and the elimination of potentially toxic waste. The 3% value is woefully low. What about protein? Again, here's an example of a food component that food manufacturers are not required to report the daily value for, unless they make claims on the package about the protein content. But let's see what it is. There are 30.5 grams of protein in one and a half cups. That computes to a daily value of 61%. What the hey? That's high. If you ate three cups of the prepared chicken helper, you would exceed the recommended amounts of protein in a single day. If you do some research on protein, particularly animal protein, you'll find that food researchers advise against eating diets high in protein because there is a relationship between those kinds of diets and the incidence of heart disease and cancers of the bowel, colon, prostate, breast, and others. A good book to read on that subject is The China Study by T that's T period Colin Campbell at the end of the spectrum of course you don't want to eat a diet too low in protein because there are some serious diseases of protein deficiency like kwashiorkor and marasmus but you would be hard pressed to find a case of either of those diseases in the USA since Americans even impoverished ones tend to overconsume protein rather than not get enough to end today's podcast i want to introduce a new feature called New Food Inventions, where I'll mention some new processed food that is hitting grocery store shelves. In the book, Salt, Sugar, Fat by Michael Moss, the author mentioned that one way food manufacturers could boost sales is to tag team with other commercially successful companies and take advantage of their favorable impressions with consumers. Here's a good example of that marketing tactic. Pillsbury introduced its new licensing relationship with the Girl Scouts of the USA to bring two of America's favorite Girl Scout cookie flavors to the kitchen with new Pillsbury Girl Scouts Thin Mints and caramel and coconut flavored baking mixes. Let's take a look at Pillsbury's Thin Mints Brownie Mix. Sugar is the number one ingredient. It also shows up as the third ingredient as part of the semi-sweet chocolate chunks. Now if you eat just two of the prepared brownies, you will take in a whopping 108 grams of sugar. Yes, I said 108 grams of sugar. That's equivalent to four ounces of sugar or a fourth of a cup of sugar in just two brownies. On the plus side, there are no artificial colors, artificial flavors, or preservatives, and that is a good trend. Oddly, the mint flavor, which gives the Girl Scout cookies their unique taste, is not specifically mentioned on the label, but is likely buried under that cursed generic term, natural flavors. So that's the end of today's food ingredient investigation. Farewell food eaters, and remember this, If you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, eat food mainly from natural plants, not manufacturing plants.